everyone, and thank you for joining us for another Alliant Employee Benefits Compliant with Alliant podcast, bringing you insights into employee benefits compliance. I'm your host, Christine Blanco. I'm an attorney and the Director of Compliance at Alliant Employee Benefits, and today I'll be talking, as usual, with my trusty podcast companion, Diana Craig. Hey, everybody. Also an attorney in our compliance department. So today we're going to run through some benefit plan-related issues that come up in mergers and acquisitions. And this is something we see often. There is a ton of consolidation uh, in, in a number of industries, and these are complex transactions. They're always very fact-specific, but we want to highlight some of the issues that we see over and over again. So we're going to talk about COBRA, which is always something we see. We're going to talk about the 105H non-discrimination rules, which apply in the self-funded plan context. We'll talk about health FSAs and then some ACA issues as well. And then we'll throw in some notes about ERISA and, and you know, let's not forget ERISA. Um, one of the things that's interesting about how these issues come up is, uh, although we would love to see them all get addressed on the front end when the terms of the transaction are being worked out, these issues, almost everyone Chris just rattled off, often just sort of get uh, left on the side of the road and then we're there cleaning it up mm-hmm. on the back end. It's, a, I mean, it's, it's just the pace of usually of a deal, like like a merger or an acquisition, the pace of the deal is to, um, you know, the purchase agreement, getting it signed, getting it closed, and no one really wants to stop and work through the benefit plan details. So by the time it comes to our desks or outside counsel's desks, it's, it's a problem generally or an issue that needs to be fixed. And there's usually a little bit of a time crunch and there's some complexity. And so um, so we wanted to kind of run through uh, some thoughts on that. So I'm going to set some threshold, like a threshold question that almost exclusively or almost we almost always ask in a mergers and acquisitions question. And it's the first one, which is, is this a stock purchase or an asset purchase? It's like a fork in the road on some of these issues. Some, there's not a ton of difference, but it really is an important piece before we move forward. Um, so a stock, you know, some background, what is a stock purchase? And this is very general, you know, obviously we're not corporate mergers and acquisitions attorneys, but um, the basics are a stock purchase is generally going to involve the purchase of all of the seller's interest in the company and they acquire that. The buyer in a stock purchase takes ownership of the company with all of its assets and liabilities. Yeah, you know, I mean, when I think about a stock purchase, mm-hmm. um, I kind of just pull back on it, and I imagine, you know, some random person is holding a stock certificate for a company, and the company is what it is, and they're basically just handing that to another person. Right. The company still continues to exist, um, and it can have some degree of change or after the transaction. Or may not, right? I mean, it yeah. could be absorbed into the buyer, or it can continue to exist. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of times when these come up, um, like I remember, gosh, it's maybe 10 years ago when Disney bought Pixar. I think that was a stock purchase. Um, Pixar still exists. It's just Disney's now owning the stock there. But you're right. They can uh, dissolve the company and fold it in. There's lots of different permutations. Yeah, every transaction is fact-specific. And an asset purchase is different, right? It's like, here's mostly all my good stuff. And you're going to buy my good stuff. And you're going to leave all the the other stuff for you to handle over there. So that's a very technical way to describe an asset purchase. But basically, the buyer's purchasing some or all of the seller's assets. Um, what's helpful for me is just to remember that assets basically means things. You're um, buying somebody's things. Right, right. Their machinery, whatever the case may be, a process, whatever. 
Um, and so the seller in an asset sale may actually continue to exist, which has some potential implications for the benefit plan. Where in a stock purchase, generally that's not happening. So um, those are kind of the differences there between a stock purchase. Those are the very technical <laughs> distinctions between a stock and an asset purchase. Oh, I have one more thing on asset purchases. Um, so yeah, when you're uh, when you're buying somebody's things, the next uh, next thing we look at for the buyer is. Are you going to be a successor employer? Which just basically means, are you buying all their things and going to continue their operations? Mm-hmm. And most times they do sort of continue operations, but there are circumstances where you go in and buy somebody's things and then use them for something else no, or liquidate right. them. Mm-hmm. But most often what crosses our desks is asset purchase, so you're buying their things and continuing their right. operations. You're going to use them in the same fashion that they were used prior to the transaction. Bingo. And um, that matters for some things that we'll talk about here in a couple minutes. So, okay, with that, are we going to move on to COBRA? Oh, yeah, I'll start with COBRA. Oh, okay. I mean, COBRA is the question that's come up on M&A, uh, gosh, for just as long as I can remember. So uh, when you're buying something or selling something, people always want to know, who's got the COBRA obligation. And um, when we talk about the COBRA obligation, you'll hear a phrase for um, my M&A, mergers and acquisitions, qualified beneficiaries. So, um, you know, an M&A qualified beneficiary is going to be somebody, you know, from seller who is already on COBRA. So you've had people pop onto COBRA as you've run your business. Um, So those people who have been on COBRA are our M&A QBs. And then also... Anyone who, in direct connection with the sale, gets fired. Um, Except we want to pull back and remember that with a stock purchase, employees are not generally, um, ongoing employees are not um, fired and rehired. But with an asset purchase, they are going to be fired. And then you may or may not rehire some of them. And then also with a stock purchase, let's say you buy a company and then just go, God, these people have crazy benefits eligibility. It's down to 15 hours. Changing benefits eligibility once you buy a company is not a COBRA QE. So those are not right. going to be M&A QBs. And that's an important reminder, too, just about a side note on COBRA. Not all losses of coverage are COBRA qualifying events. And I know sometimes it can feel a little bit icky when somebody loses coverage, but you have to lose coverage under one of the reasons enumerated in the statute. Yeah, we. I mean, and that comes up um, once a week for me at least. Right. So what happens, um, basically the rules on COBRA for M&A are, are a lot simpler than people make them out to be. So stock purchase or asset purchase, seller has the COBRA obligation if they're going to continue to main, maintain any plans or if any entity in seller's controlled group maintains any plans. We forget sometimes that COBRA applies on a controlled group basis. So um, that's what we want to ask. Is seller maintaining plans or are there plans left in seller's control group? Because if there are, seller's got that COBRA obligation. If seller does not have any plans, then it is generally going to be buyer's obligation. So buyer's going to have to pick up all those M&A QBs. Um, Only exception is if, if, if it's an asset purchase and you are not continuing operations. So you're not using the things in the same manner. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then the parties can always agree to something different if they actually do what we would like to see, which is address all this on the front end. That, absolutely, that's right. And um, again, it's important to remember this is all very fact-specific and you know every transaction looks a little bit different. Is it my turn? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you get the worst topic yet, uh, which is cafeteria plans and health FSAs. I don't know. I think that's debatable. But a lot of times, you know, almost 
every transaction, we see a question about health FSAs. What do you do with the health FSA, right? And just as background, it's your health flexible spending account, which has a lot of hamstrings, a lot of strings attached to it, right? It's a use it or lose it rule. You can only make election changes under certain circumstances. And so when you have, when you have a buyer uh, buying a plan or buying an entity that has a plan with a health FSA, what happens to that health FSA? And so it's it's actually less complicated um, probably than um, than it looks or than the issue presents in a stock purchase. So you're you know you're transferring that stock certificate. The company either continues to run as is or it's merged into the the buyer's organization. But in a stock purchase, if the acquired business has its own cafeteria plan, those elections just kind of continue um, without interruption. There is no event here that would allow any kind of change in election. There's also no qualifying event, as Diana said. So there's no real COBOL implications here. Um, those elections just continue because the employees continue to work and they're bound by those prior elections per the rules. Um, the buyer may want to terminate the acquired business cafeteria plan at closing, which essentially would just result in forfeitures, which makes nobody happy. Yeah, I mean, most people, even if you want to terminate that plan right away, we would probably say try and mm -hmm. run it out through the end of the plan year so you don't have a bunch of crazy forfeitures. Right, right. Or just, you know, roll them into yours. Like, there's just, you know, think about that um, when you're thinking about the health FSA and 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 what you want to do post-close of the deal um, in terms of, you know, just how the employees will feel. It if it's mid-year, you know, that could be a fairly significant impact on some employees. Employees hate forfeitures. They, re they really do. So, and in sidebar, there's no formal IRS guidance on what you do in a health FSA and a stock purchase. There's some informal guidance, and we've drawn from that. But when you're talking about the asset purchase, so you're just buying, you've just bought the things, um, there is, you know, there there is a termination of employment. There that technical termination of employment. So the IRS has given us some guidance on what to do there. And I'm just going to hit one real quickly. Essentially, the IRS has said the buyer can agree to cover those transferred employees under its own health FSA for the remainder of the plan year. It's pretty easy. Um, the, those account balances will roll over. They'll continue to have those same elections. They can submit costs even prior to the date of transaction or costs incurred or uh, claims incurred. Um, and again, there's really no, there'd be no um, change in status or any change that would uh, allow an election change in that situation. And that's what really we like to see happen. There's another situation where, you know, the seller could continue to maintain, but we don't generally need to go oh, down yeah, that. Yeah, they had... So IRS jumped on this issue because under the rules of how an asset purchase works, when everybody gets fired, even if you rehire them, there just would automatically be these forfeitures. So they gave us basically, you know, two options to avoid forfeitures. Chris covered the one that makes sense, really the only one that makes sense. The yeah. other's just kind of stupid. Yeah, and given that this is a podcast, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole on that. And so what we're doing here is hitting two, like the most common scenarios, the most practical scenarios. And that's really what we see happen most commonly. They just transfer it over either on a stock or an asset sell. It's smooth. Um, and, and you don't have angry employees. So I think that takes us to ACA. No, we're going to talk about non-discrimination first. She's um, making me talk about 105H. Chris is trying to skip what is probably my favorite subject in health and welfare so plan benefit compliance. <laughs> uh, so what is 105H? It is a non-discrimination framework that applies to self-funded plans. And it was enacted in 1978. We had regs come out in 1981. And since then, what's happened? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> 
So this was, um, you know, a non-discrimination statute enacted when I was just, you know, like a toddler uh, with, again, no active (laughs) enforcement since enactment. But it has um, some pretty onerous and thorny um, technical testing requirements that go with it. And we can't ignore it. We can't totally ignore it, even though sometimes we want to. Um, Well, actually, I don't. I love this stuff. But anyway, testing for 105H applies on a controlled group basis. So you're supposed to do, you know, sort of a benefits prong and then a very math-intensive participation prong of testing. Um, and, you know, if, you're, if your benefit options are all uniformly available to everyone in the controlled group, same contributions, same waiting periods, you're never going to have a 105H problem. But the likelihood of that in a merger and acquisition is it's, slim to none. Yeah, it's, it's slim to none in a lot of just sort of um, operational realities for mm-hmm. big companies, too. Um, note to self, remember, minders, only self-funded plans. If yes. this is fully insured plans in your world, you can stop listening right now. Now is when you go get coffee if you only have fully insured plans. But so we get the question a lot on how does 105H testing work after a merger or acquisition? And, you know, there's really not um, guidance there in a benefit plan context. What we would tell you is, you know, your safest approach is to make benefits as uniform as you can, as quickly as you can. Um, But we also kind of borrow from some 401k guidance, which actually give us... um, a more formal um, transition rule after a merger or acquisition. Under that rule, they basically say you have the remainder of the plan year in which the transaction occurred and one additional plan year to come into compliance. Right. I think that's a fairly safe bet. You know, um, when you're when you have a transaction, even just the practical realities, it's nearly impossible for the reasons we mentioned to yeah. have it ready to go um, on parity at the you know. At, the day after. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a the good rule of thumb is the remainder of the plan mm-hmm. year plus one more plan year. We kind of see those parallel provisions in some of the ACA stuff too, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. So look at me, look at me with my transition. Nice segue <laughs> into into ACA. So, um, just sidebar, pay or play mandate is still in existence. Where there's some stuff going on uh, in Washington D.C. that at some point we may hit via podcast, but right now, pay or play is is still a reality and we're going to talk a little bit about mergers and acquisitions there i'm going to set some thresholds there or some uh, foundation rather um what are the pay or play requirements so for large employers they have to offer you know a certain level of coverage to substantially all of your full-time employees and their dependents or potentially pay a penalty so are you an ale did you average 50 or more full-time equivalent employees over the past calendar year, that can be significantly, obviously, impacted by business reorganizations. Well, and that uh, threshold applies on a controlled group basis. There you go. That's right. Um, so those two things. So so if you have, and we'll, Diana will talk about, we'll both talk about this a little bit more, but if you have, you're buying, you're a large organization and you're buying somebody with, you know, fewer than 50 full-time equivalent employees, those that, that entity becomes an ALE, even though it may not look or feel anything like a large employer upon purchase. And then full-time employee, what's the definition of a full-time employee? Averages 30, 130 or more hours a month via either a look-back or monthly. And another implication is if you're an ALE, you have to do ACA reporting. So what happens when there's a merger and acquisition? Who has what responsibility? Who's full-time employees? It's a mess. Yeah, I mean, these are really, really hard topics. And I think I'll grab how full-time status determinations work, and then I'm going to make you talk about reporting, because that is certainly the the worst of it. (laughs) I think this stuff is yucky, but go. Proceed. (laughs) Okay, so when we're looking at um, the pay-or-play obligation to provide a certain level of coverage to substantially all of your full-time employees, 
um, and full-time is 130 hours or more on average per month. There are two ways to determine whether someone is full-time or, or not. You can use the monthly method where at the end of every month you just add up someone's hours and if they hit 130 they're full-time, if they didn't they're not. Um, that can be problematic if you have employees with variable hour schedules, fluctuating hours. So employers ask for something to give them a little bit more um, stability, a little bit more of a runway to work out who's full-time or not. And the IRS gave us the look-back method where full-time status is determined by averaging hours worked, generally over a 12-month period. You got a runway. If at the end of that runway you hit 1560, you're full-time. Um, but by giving us these methods, um, it can kind of complicate what happens if someone who's a monthly method employer buys a look-back method employer or vice versa. And the method that you choose a lot of times depends on your operations. You know, there are, retail does one thing where, you know, certain professional services do another. And so it really, geographic, you know, Lee, it, there's all kinds of reasons why you might use different methods. Yes, and you, you do have some flexibility. You can, as an employer, pick to, uh, to use monthly um, in this context and look back in another, but only va uh, based on very specific criteria. So you can use a different method of determining full-time status for your hourly versus salaried, bargained, non-bargained, different bargaining groups, and then these last two are the most important, locations in different states, and different controlled group member entities. So that means if you um, are buying an entity, let's say in a stock purchase, and it's got its own EIN, it's gonna keep existing as its own entity, and it's, let's say, look back, you might wanna keep it right. as a look back. Same thing if you're buying something in you know, Georgia or Tennessee, and you're in California, and you have look back, and they wanna do monthly, you can keep, to, you can keep doing that. I wanna make a practical note that most employers find it very hard to run different methods. Yeah. because it's you know the platform is different and the, the way you collect data is different so um, but you can do it it would be very much based on a, a hugely practical need like mm -hmm. if you were running you know manufacturing and mm -hmm. you know as one division or, or EIN not division mm -hmm. um, and then had a totally different operation right. so right. that it's it's driven by practical necessity otherwise mm -hmm. we like to see consistent methods used across the board sure so I'm going to try and just hit this really quickly. Yeah, we don't want to do a webinar here. <laughs> I know, and this is so complicated. And we do have really great white papers on this. So yes. if you want to know more, you can know more. But just, just know if you're a monthly buyer and you buy a monthly seller, you're fine. It's the same sort of operation. But if you're a monthly employer and you buy a look-back seller, you are obligated to continue the results of that look-back method for the stability period in which the purchase occurred and the next stability period. Uh -huh. um, There's but rule again. you know how this works uh, for practical purposes is when we do that, they're basically asking you to give anyone who measured full time the benefit of being mm -hmm. measured full time. But if someone pops out as part time, they give you a little more leeway. You can either lock their part-time status or measure them monthly. So um, again, that's a lot of information and it's, it's pretty complicated, but I wanna go back to, to just what happens if the inverse happens. If we have a look back employer that buys a monthly seller, you have to recreate your look back based on seller's data. Right. So again, that's just um, complex 
and you're going to need a lot of data, data. from that mm-hmm. seller. So I'm going to leave it there with that. Okay. And know um, we have got some white papers on this if we you do. want to be riveted. Yeah, right. There, yes. And I think, too, knowing that this issue is out there is really you're a total A-plus student. So um, the complexities are what they are. And if as long as you know that you need to talk about it. And ideally, too, that you know that you need the data ahead of time. And and what, like what we said, a lot of times, you're, you know, the benefit plan is going to be sad and lonely in the corner until the, the transaction closes. And at that point, you may not be able to get to the data, and then, then you just go from there. But that's a note. So data has never been more important. And, Chris, it's also important for reporting, right? It is. It is. So real quickly, I'm going to go this real quickly. Um, who has to report when when you buy, when one organization buys another one mid-year? I want to be clear that there's no actual formal guidance here. Diana and I have parsed through all applicable guidance, the general control group rules, um, the notice that she references here for full-time status, plus some other ALE and control group rules. And we've also, um, there are other reliable practitioners out there who totally agree with us. Um, and so, like, the really the big issue is what happens when you buy, as an ALA, you buy a small entity who has not been reporting. So that small acquired entity actually becomes an ALE upon acquisition. There's no transition period um, based on the existing rules. And they'll report for the remainder of the calendar year as an ALE, but coding those employees as, quote, not employed. So that's code 2A for the month prior to the acquisition. And if they're going to be operating on their own as an, their own individual EIN, they'll do their own 1094 and then their associated 1095s with that. Um, and so it's important to understand that when you get that small entity, they become an ALE, boom, it's like the magic touch. Um, when you require, when an ALE requires another ALE, that ALE just continues to have its reporting obligation. It had one before, it will continue to have one if it's going to operate. Again, as its own EIN, it will report with its own 1094 because each control group uh, member entity has to do that. Um, so it won't look a whole lot differently, and that's in a stock purchase. In an asset purchase, the buyer ALE is going to report for that newly acquired ALE, but generally will just reflect an increased number of employees because, again, they're purchasing the assets and whatever employees they've added as a result of that. Well, and I know this is a lot of information, but on reporting, we actually have a chart, and that always makes it easier. Do charts are fun and, and easy. So... We want to wrap that up, but also remember, um, always remember your plan documents, your 5,500 filings. Those things are um, often overlooked. So just make sure that however it is you're operating your plan and moving forward from transaction um, is consistent with your plan documents. And I think, are we good? No, I think that's, that's about it. Okay, so that wraps up this episode of Compliant with Alliant offering you a more approachable view of our employee benefits compliance. And for more, for more information, visit us online at AlliantBenefits.com. And I think we have those white papers available on AlliantBenefits.com. All right, thanks.